Welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast, where we bring Sunday home. Join us as we dive deeper into First Baptist's weekly sermons, discuss practical applications, and answer your questions. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast. I'm Jordan Upton, and with me as always is Pastor Jeff Reynolds. Jeff, how are you doing today? Jordan, I'm doing great. The sun is shining. It is shining longer into the morning and into the evening, and I am thrilled about that. So, doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I I just finished The Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Such a great book. Very good. Very good. I I was, I think it's my favorite work by Lewis now. Really? I do. Yeah. I haven't gone back through Narnia in a while, but I think think so. I haven't read a lot by him, mostly the fiction, but Mm -hmm. actually explicitly fiction. (laughs) But (laughs) it's all good stuff, though. I mean, it's it's great allegory. No matter what Tolkien thought about it, it was a little bit too much on the nose. Well, well, hey, this one was dedicated to J.R.R. Tolkien. They were close friends. I mean, you know, just just because they have a little critique of each other doesn't mean they're not buddies. So, So what about you? What have you been reading? So, I am in the middle of a book entitled Scientism and Secularism by J.P. Moreland. J.P. Moreland is is the Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Talbot University, uh, Talbot Seminary, Biola University. And uh, he's an apologist and a philosopher. And he's talking about the danger of uh, what is essentially a naturalistic worldview um, that he is terming as scientism. And I don't, he's not the first to use that term. But when science becomes a philosophical mindset that is an a priori assumption before you um, observe or experiment, um, then it becomes remarkably problematic. And so it's really a fascinating book to look at how in the 20th century, um, our nation, particularly in the universities, switched from uh, what had been a worldview open to the intervention of the divine uh, to a worldview that is strongly shaped purely by scientific empiricism and that sort of philosophy. So it's not a light work. <laughs> it's, it's not like, a, no, but, but frankly, neither is screw tape. No, the screw right. tape weathers, um, it's, it's an amazing insight, I think, into uh, what is a very plausible um, viewpoint of the enemy and what he's trying to do uh, in our world. And I think Lewis has a really good grasp on the human nature and what we struggle with. Like, oh. you know, So the book is uh, a fictional set of letters by a demon writing to another demon, and he, he talks about the different things that you can do to trip up humans into falling away from God. So when he's talking about it, he's like, you know, just get them to think about how holy they are or how good they are, and just let them simmer in it for a while. And it's like, ouch. <laughs> Absolutely ouch. Yeah, it really is. He, he He's playing the devil's advocate, yeah. quite, quite literally. Yeah. And uh, it, it is eye-opening for sure. It is. Okay, so we'll move into today's questions today. So our scripture from this week is 1 Timothy 4, 7b through 8. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Okay, so Jeff, many people who work out regularly train with a particular bunch of people who push themselves. Uh, And I think it's good to do the same when we're training for godliness. Can you talk about how to find fellow disciples, individuals or groups 
who will strengthen our walk with Christ? Well, the easiest way is to be a part of a church. And um, that is one of the biggest values of actually going in person to a, a church gathering, um, going to a worship service. You're automatically there with brothers and sisters in Christ. Then the, the, the greater thing is being a part of some sort of discipleship group. Whether you call that a Sunday school class or a Bible study class or here at First Baptist, a koinonia group, um, whatever the case may be, uh, those groups exist. Just about any Bible preaching church is going to have the opportunity for you to gather with a group of believers. And so that's an easy built-in step. All you have to do is show up. Um, One of the things I love about going to the particular gym where I work out is all I have to do is get there. Once I get there, I've got community. I've got somebody telling me what to do. Most of the time, I'm not in the mood to do that thing in that moment, but I'm always glad once it's over that I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And so same thing here. We have groups built in that you can be a part of. And what happens invariably is you meet people that you would not have met otherwise, and all of a sudden you find people that are running the same path as you and you can run alongside one another. So I think that it is so vitally important to cultivate that Christian community, particularly in terms of our discipleship journey. Um, But the easiest way to do it is just get involved in a discipleship group of some sort. Yeah. So when I was formulating this question, I was thinking about your previous teachings on 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So I started thinking about the different uh, levels of connection with disciples. So it's like, you know, we're, we're brought in and we become disciples under someone, right? Someone, another disciple is training us. Then you need to find someone who's on your level, sort of, so to speak, and you need sure. to be training with them. Mm-hmm. But then you also need to be keeping an eye out for people who you can disciple as well. Right. Um, can you kind of go into that a little bit more in detail? Yeah, so... Christian growth happens within the context, really, of one-to-one disciple-making, and that's what you have illustrated in 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul writes to Timothy, the things you've heard and seen in me in the presence of many witnesses, the same entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you have five generations of Christians. Jesus who's the first generation, who, who taught Paul, uh, obviously stopping him on the road to Damascus, but then the training in Arabia. Uh, then Paul, who taught Timothy. Timothy, who's supposed to teach faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. So there's five generations of Christians there. That's the way it works. And I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of people who become Christians and they, they isolate, and they don't grow in the beginning. Um, for me, I didn't grow as much as I could because I did not, in the in the beginning stages of my faith when I was 12 years old, although I had a group which was super helpful, um, I did not have somebody intentionally pouring into me. Once I got to college and had some people who were intentionally pouring into my life and then asking me questions, um, that changed my journey with Christ. It, it provided some level of accountability, but it, more than accountability, it provided a remarkable level of encouragement. Um, to have somebody to walk alongside. And so here's what I would say. Again, within the context of a local body, within the context of a church, you have people who have been following Christ longer than you. Uh, You have people likely who have been following Christ for a shorter period of time than you. You have people who are older than you. You have people that are younger than you. One of the things that I love about our church is we are profoundly multi-generational. We have have every generation represented from the 
boomers uh, all the way to Gen Z and everything in between and whatever's coming after Gen Z, I guess Gen Alpha or whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not up on that one yet. But you have the opportunity to have those intergenerational connections where you can learn from those who are just a few steps beyond where you are. So what I like to do is observe people that uh, I want to be like, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and there are plenty of uh, older men here in this church that I think um, they're doing it very well. And so I just try to learn from them. I just try to listen to them. I try to glean from them. And, uh, and then there are plenty of folks here who are younger than me, younger than me in the faith. Um, and I love to take the opportunity just to sit down and say, how's life going? You know, Jordan, you and I have that sort of a relationship. And so we get to have that conversation about faith and, and we're recording those conversations now, um, but about faith, but then also about family and about children and about, you know, just, just living out the Christ centered life. And, um, and we encourage each other. It's not like this is a one-sided sort of a thing, um, but we encourage one another, and that's what we're supposed to do. So again, being a part of a local body cultivates the opportunity for those connections to happen. And once you're there, just being intentional about, I'm looking for somebody, um, somebody that that I'll, I look up to, that I want to learn from, uh, and then somebody that, that I might be able to pour my life into. Um, if you're sitting in the house not leaving, uh, it makes it a whole lot tougher. Um, but then also, let me say one other thing. Don't forget about those who are in your household. So if you're a parent, well, God has given you that child or those children to pour your life into, to disciple. You are the chief disciple maker in that child's life. If you're a grandparent, God has given you children and grandchildren that even though they may not be in your household, you still have the opportunity to make a godly investment in them. And so, you know, you think about the Shema. Deuteronomy 6. It is the built-in parent-to-child generational transfer of uh, knowledge, wisdom, growth in the faith that uh, God commands, even all the way back in Deuteronomy. Yeah, all the way back in Deuteronomy, but even all the way back into Exodus. That's right. Yeah, Moses does that several times. He does that in Deuteronomy, and he even does that all the way back in Exodus when he's at the Seder table in Exodus. Before that Exodus has happened, He's telling the Israelites what to tell their kids about how important the Exodus will be. Yeah. You know, in the coming hours. He's already giving them the, you know, I don't know if you'd say the eschatology, but he's giving them what's going to happen and what you're supposed to say about it. Yeah. He's already instructing them so that they can instruct their kids who will instruct their kids. And that's why, you know, even today people are doing satyrs all around the world speaking about the redemption of God. You know, it's interesting. Every time I read in the Old Testament, it's repeated throughout the Torah so many times. When your children ask you in times to come, what do these things mean? Yeah. Then you shall tell them. I mean, every time I read it, I tear up because it is this this amazing way in which God is building in discipleship and love for the next generation and explicitly telling parents and grandparents and great-grandparents when they ask you, what's this all about? Then, and I'm getting goosebumps right now, Mm. then you shall tell them what the Lord has done. And that's so important that we tell those who are coming after us, whether we're biologically related to them or not, what the Lord has done. And I want to just encourage you, if you're listening to this and you are not telling your story to your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, friends, whatever the case may be, they're missing out. So please tell them the story of what God has done, um, because that's 
a beautiful way in which God communicates his greatness and his goodness and his love to generations that are yet to come. Amen. So speaking about testimony, on Sunday we took communion here at First Baptist. So every time you give the admonition that only believers in Christ should partake of the bread and of the cup, I always think of 1 Corinthians 11. So in the passage, Paul says that some Corinthians have been partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and have fallen sick or even died. So should this passage be a warning to us today? What should we think about the bread and the cup as we're partaking of it? So what that's called in theological terms is fencing the table. And it absolutely comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we approached we approach the, the bread and the cup in a worthy manner. We are to examine ourselves. We are not to take communion lightly. Um, that is a, a holy ordinance that the Lord has given us. We don't use the term sacrament because sacrament uh, implies that we are receiving grace by eating the, the element, uh, eating the bread, drinking the cup. Um, but it is an ordinance. It is a lasting reminder ordained by God through Jesus Christ that we are to continue celebrating the Lord's Supper and every time we do so, to do so in remembrance of him. And so it's vitally important to me as a minister to fence the table so that I don't have unbelievers there who unknowingly condemn themselves, you know, consume judgment by participating in a meal that they're not supposed to participate in. And so it is a gracious thing. I'm sure there are people who take it as some sort of uh, means of exclusion, and it is, um, but Christianity is exclusive. It is inclusively exclusive. In other words, uh, you only go to heaven if you're in Jesus Christ. You're only saved if you're in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ's arms are open to receive anyone who will come to him in repentance and faith. And the same is true with the Lord's Supper. You only celebrate the Lord's Supper if you are in Christ. But Christ's arms are open to receive anyone who will come to him in repentance and faith. And then, having been cleansed of your sin by placing your faith in Jesus, you're welcome to celebrate the ordinance of the Lord's Supper with us. And so, yeah, that's called fencing the table. I think it's a vital it's a vitally important part of uh, leading the Lord's Supper, and uh, that's why we do that. So I don't exactly know how to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it like this. Is communion bread and communion cups, are they magic? Is there something uh, special about them? Is is there inherent power or danger in the little wafer and the little cup? So that is a great question, and it is a huge point of differentiation among various denominations of the Christian faith. So um, we are Baptists. We look at the bread and the cup as symbols. They are symbolic. The bread is symbolic of the body of Christ. The cup is symbolic of the blood of Christ. Um, And so that is a very specific way, and you will hear me say every single time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this bread symbolizes. And that may not sound like much, but I am making a deeply profound theologically differentiating statement when I say this bread symbolizes, uh, this cup symbolizes. Um, Other denominations look at it a little differently. So in Roman Catholicism, for example, they believe in what is called transubstantiation, uh, in which when the priest holds up the the element uh, that they would call the host, and you hear the little bells ring in the back, um, they believe that that 
wafer is literally becoming the flesh of Jesus. They believe that that wine is literally becoming the blood of Jesus. And so they believe that uh, in celebrating the, the Mass, is what they call it, uh, or the Eucharist, that literally Christ is being sacrificed again to cover over sins. And so we, we do not agree with that. Um, so I will never say this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, because it's not. It's a piece of unleavened bread. Uh, we do not affirm transubstantiation nor that practice. Incidentally, that's why if you're not Roman Catholic and you go to a Roman Catholic church and try to participate in communion, they won't allow you to do that because you have to be a Catholic to receive communion uh, in that setting. Uh, other denominations, particularly Lutherans, believe in what is called consubstantiation. So they don't go as far as the Roman Catholics would go in that the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Jesus, but rather that that Jesus is more present within the bread and the wine uh, in a special way during the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Again, uh, you know, we we reject that view um, and affirm that the bread is symbolic, the cup is symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus, and that we um, are partaking of those elements not as a means of grace insofar as that grace is being uh, endowed to us by taking those elements. And that's another important distinction. And we may be going long, but that's another important distinction. So we do not believe in what is called sacerdotalism or sacramentalism. Um, sacramentalism is the notion that grace is imparted by doing things. Um, the, the, the term in, in Latin is ex opere operato, that by the doing of it, grace is infused. Um, so in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Mass, the Eucharist, is one of the sacraments that they receive, and they believe that by receiving it, they are receiving grace. Now, there's a whole lot of other theological distinctions, but to focus on that, um, we again reject that teaching that I receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ my Lord by faith in Him alone. I don't receive it by uh, being baptized. I don't receive the grace by taking the Lord's Supper. Um, we call those ordinances, not sacraments, and that's why. So that's that's a pretty important distinction. That makes sense, and it makes sense in context with what Jesus says, not just at the Last Supper, but in other places. So He, he says, this is my body, this is my blood, but then Elsewhere, like in John 6, he tells people, you have to drink my blood. Yeah. But we don't take that literally. That has to be figured on some level. And Semitisms or, or Jewish expressions of the time were very figurative. It's like today when we say, I could eat a cow. You know, that's not to be taken literally. That's, you know, supposed to be conveying some concept. So when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, if I'm understanding correctly, that has to be some sort of teaching of a concept, not a teaching of some metaphysical reality that's changing on the table in front of them. That's right. And Jesus is speaking metaphorically uh, to say that we take him in, you know, and he's speaking in that sense in John chapter six, uh, I believe he's speaking intentionally offensively to run off the people that like him <laughs> because that's that, I mean, to a, to a Jewish individual saying eat blood of any sort is disgusting. It is, it is uh, anathema. You cannot eat the blood. Um, for him to say specifically, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, what is he saying? He's saying, you've, you've got to wholeheartedly take me in. This is, this is vital. Um, and so he's using metaphorical language. But the other thing that's super important here, 
And Hebrews 10 tells us that by a single offering, God has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, that Jesus died once for all. Um, Hebrews 10 verse 11 says, And every priest, talking about the Old Testament priest, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So again, Christ is not sacrificed repeatedly. Uh, and that would be a significant difference in what we teach and what the Roman Catholic Church would teach, that, that the Mass is the sacrifice of the Mass, that, that Christ is being sacrificed yet again for the sins. And uh, the Bible clearly refutes that in what I just read in Hebrews chapter 10. So, um, yeah, again, we're remembering and proclaiming the death of Jesus. That's what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11. We proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus until he comes, that in his death we find life. And that takes us into today's listener question. Listeners, if you have a question, just go to the link in the show notes or comment in the post below. So when you train for physical fitness, you can see signs of progress. What are the signs of successful training for godliness? That is a great question from a very insightful listener. Let me say a couple things. Number one, uh, when I go to the gym one time and come home and look in the mirror, I don't see any change at all. When I go to the gym for a week and come home and look in the mirror, I don't see any change at all. When I make a habit of going to the gym over the course of a month, I'm going to start to see change. If I continue in that habit over the course of two months, three months, half a year, a full year, I'm going to see some pretty drastic change. And I would offer that the same is true with engaging in the spiritual disciplines. So you decide to read your Bible one day, you may not notice any difference whatsoever. The, the effect is cumulative as you return to those disciplines day after day. When I was in college, my football coach used to tell us that it takes 28 repetitions to set something in your mind. And so that meant we had to run the same plays over and over and over a lot so that they would become muscle memory and they would be set in our minds. Well, what does that mean insofar as spiritual disciplines? Well, it means that it's going to take about a month to develop the discipline of getting up every day whenever you choose to read the Word, and reading the Word. Uh, it's going to take about a month to develop the discipline of focusing your heart in prayer. It's going to take about a month to develop the discipline of looking for people with whom you can engage in spiritual conversation and, and all of the things. You know, uh, If you just do it once, it's not going to be like some sort of magic pill that all of a sudden everything changes. So I think that you have to continue to persist in that discipline. And as you do, then you start to see the fruit of that discipline come. For me, it is evident in what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I have found and continue to find that when I am engaging in those disciplines, um, those elements of the faith, those fruit of the Spirit— are more prevalent in my life. They, they express themselves more clearly. Why? Because I am less distracted from the work of the Spirit within me. Uh, when I'm not engaging in those disciplines, I find that I become more easily distracted and the fruit of the Spirit is less apparent in my life. And so that's one of the ways that you can check. Um, 
is the fruit of the Spirit present and prevalent in your life? Um, and if not, then here are some ways that you can do it. I made a statement Sunday that the pathway to the miraculous often passes through the mundane. Yeah. And that is so true in my life. Um, that is so true. Uh, <laughs> I was recently with uh, a man who lived with the preacher who preached the chapel service that kind of touched off the Asbury revival. <laughs> and he, he was telling me about what the preacher said. And he said, the preacher said it was a horrible sermon. He had 4,000 different things he was trying to say. They didn't come together well, um, but he, and he didn't have time to make his final point, which was to continue in the love of God. So he said, listen, if you got time to stick around afterwards and just want to pray and, and dwell in the love of God, that'd be great. And, and so some students did. About 20 students just stuck around, and what happened is they prayed, and they were just kind of dwelling in the presence and love of God uh, together with each other, and all of a sudden more students joined them, and, and this, this worshipful expression kind of broke out. And so, um, again, if you go listen to that sermon, and I haven't listened to the whole thing, but even the way he starts, I mean, it's just it kind of feels like an unfolding lawn chair. I mean, there's nothing, there's no rhetorical grandeur about it. It's just... Hey guys, you know we're we're, we're going to focus on loving the Lord and focus on these things that He's told us to do, um, and that's it. The pathway to the miraculous often passes through the mundane. That you know, my life will change if I read God's Word every day. My life will change if I spend dedicated time in prayer every day. My life will change, and our community will change if I engage lostness intentionally uh, whenever I am able. Um, and and it, my life will change as I tithe as I use my gifts, talents, abilities, and resources to serve God and other human beings. But it's not a one-time deal. you got to keep working at it. And over time, you will see that transformation happen. Amen. Jeff, can you pray for all of us that we can continue in that? Let's pray. Lord, I confess that I uh, am tempted often to become spiritually lazy and to neglect the disciplines that you have given Lord, we pray for all of us that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to persevere, to persist in these disciplines. Lord, to continue seeking you by way of reading your word, by way of prayer, by way of worship, by way of engaging lostness, by way of giving, and by way of cultivating Christian community. And Lord, we pray that as we do those things, that you would continually transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we would become more like Jesus so that the world would see more Christ in us. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our channel. To submit a question about Sunday's sermon, the Bible, or walking with Jesus, click the link in the episode description. Our hosts today are Pastor Jeff Reynolds and myself, Jordan Upton. Our engineer is Elliot Beckley.